John Brown's body lies a mouldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a mouldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a mouldering in the grave. His soul is marching on. Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 21, John Brown's Body. Today we'll explore the biography of someone very different from most of our politicians and statesmen and great inventors. No, this is going to cover perhaps the singular event which made the Civil War inevitable, and it all begins with a biography of John Brown, more or less. We will trace how he completed his journey from abolition to revolution, or perhaps even terrorism. In some ways, this also serves as a summation of the transformation of American politics itself over the course of the 1850s. John Brown was born in 1800, becoming yet another of the many figures we've discussed who came into the world right around the turn of the century. Of course, this means he was no longer a young man by the time he became embroiled in Kansas politics many years later and found his destiny. Nonetheless, in all that time, he proved far more fiery and extreme than any other younger man in Kansas, or perhaps more radical than any in the whole country. And that list includes his own sons and the radical abolitionists who came to support him. Perhaps more than any other single American, he would contribute most to the eruption of civil war. This naturally raises the question of exactly who John Brown was, and that's a very complicated knot to unravel. In one telling, John Brown is a fanatical abolitionist, an uncompromising champion of freedom and righteousness, who burns with a passion to confront the evils of slavery. Brown, the man of action, with a feverish energy for his holy work, advanced his cause and his faith more than anyone else to the point of enacting a revolution, only to be brought down by the corrupt oligarchy that fought back furiously and violently with oppression and tyranny. And yet, this is not the only view of the man. In another telling, John Brown was a fraud and a cheat, who engaged in continual lifelong deception, with his ultimate lie being to deceive himself into a self-destructive murder spree, or perhaps several. His retaliations against slavery were a way to excuse his perennial personal failures, and he created an entire false persona in order to gain the money and supplies to live out a, a violent self-fulfilling fantasy. He engaged in pointless murder and destruction that only ever harmed the people he purported to care about. People he, quite frankly, never spent much, if any time, actually helping. Not when he could be off pretending to be a hero. I wish that I could give you a clear story with a quick and easy take on John Brown. And yet, the man himself acted with such wild extremes that it's very difficult to get a grip on his character. Brown dedicated himself to such an extreme course in a noble cause and murdered innocents while mouthing the noblest of sentiments. He did terrible things, and quite frankly, he often seemed like an absolutely horrible human being. But he was also capable of acting against the real evils of the world in ways no one else could or would. I'm not even sure that the truth of this lies between the two extremes. Fact is stranger indeed than fiction, and in John Brown's case, both versions of the tale might be completely true at the same time. All I can do in the end is share the events and let you make your own conclusions. History to this day have tended to become baffled by the weird contradictions, or at least the apparent contradictions, in John Brown's nature. Equally, P. 
People even in Brown's time had strong political or social reasons to adopt misleading views on the man, which helped obscure the truth of the matter. There's no shame here in avoiding any clean and clear conclusions about the morality of someone who lived such a life as Brown's. Instead of trying to give generalities about his character, let us explore the man's experience and actions. John Brown came from Connecticut, but he lived all over the northeastern United States in his time. By one of history's odd quirks, in fact, his father, Owen Brown, taught an apprentice tanner by the name of Jesse Grant, about the same age as Brown. And Grant would in time become the, rabidly, perhaps even obnoxiously, anti-slavery father to a certain famous Union general. But we shall pass over this for now. The Brown family held the distinction of a long history, and a very well-established history at that, in New England, tracing their lineage back to the Puritan fathers. While not exactly wealthy, they were well-educated for the time, and certainly had enough knowledge and money to invest in land and business. Not too different from the old Lincoln family in many respects. Thus, John Brown grew up with access to the wider world of education and opportunity, at least to understand what might be available for intellectual evangelical of the day. And yet as he grew to manhood, he also began a life of erratic success and failure in business, which would continuously hound him over his entire lifetime. Getting to that life, John Brown married young, hardly uncommon in the early Republic, and then remarried after the unfortunate death of his first wife, which I'm sad to say was also not uncommon. He would eventually become the father to quite a few young'uns, the patriarch of an extensive clan with over 20 children, although only half survived to adulthood. In fact, Several of his sons would eventually join in the infamous crimes in Kansas, as well as take part in his assault on Harper's Ferry. It seems that those close to Brown commonly idolized him, or at least it appears that none of his family disdained him even when they knew very well his weaknesses or failings. He was known to discipline his sons harshly, but in a rather unusual display of equality, made sure they knew he disciplined himself for infractions in the same manner. That said, his work was decidedly less fruitful than his private life, and business partners held a much less adoring view of Brown than his children. As a young man, Brown moved to Pennsylvania, and at first did well enough for himself. But after some family losses, including the death of his eldest son and other personal challenges, his business began to suffer. Afterwards, his fortunes drifted with the economy. He never quite seemed to get away from debt for the rest of his life, and would always be angling for an advantage in business. The surprising thing about it is that Brown truly did have a number of talents. He was quite skilled in tanning and especially animal husbandry, and was educated enough to be interested in and aware of the wider world of business. He could see opportunities, and he had the mind to avoid bad deals or sharp trades. Yet among his many deeds and misdeeds, Brown more or less stole money from his business partners. He was frankly darn lucky not to wind up in serious legal trouble on more than one occasion. He took investments and spent them directly on personal expenses, forfeiting entire business deals in an instant. On one occasion, his farm got sold out from under him to pay his substantial debts, and he then tried to retain it by force once the new owners came to take possession. He dodged bill collectors just as fervently as he condemned slavery, and in an earlier era, John Brown would undoubtedly have been sent to debtor's prison or run out of the state wholesale for swindling. After many years of stagnation, a major shift in Brown's life and his association with the anti-slavery movement came when he moved to Springfield, Massachusetts in 1846. 
This put him in close contact with a broader and much more important social circle, all of whom had pro-abolitionist views. This included some of the leading literary and intellectual figures of the era. But we do need to stress that in this cause, John Brown was an active participant, but emphatically not a major leader. His relationship with the abolition movement remained somewhat tenuous because he took little direct action in politics. In fact, Brown spent most of his time trying to urge improvements in the wool trade, though he did find a moment to take some rather dramatic photos showing his support for the Underground Railroad. According to later testimony, Brown was already thinking about sparking a slave revolt in 1850. During a trip to Europe, ostensibly for the wool trade, he reportedly studied forts and guns more than sheep and woolen goods. The next year, he organized an African-American self-defense militia in Massachusetts as well, the first practical steps in his life that he took in opposition to slavery. This is how things stood when, in 1855, Brown began to look westward for new opportunities. This meant following in the footsteps of some of his own children who'd gone out to Kansas. Now, this sometimes gets written up as Brown enlisting in the armed conflict against slavery, yet we also have no very clear picture that this was a major factor in his thinking at this time. If anything, he seems to have been interested in the commercial or agricultural wealth of a region that conveniently lay hundreds of miles distant from any of his creditors. Naturally, this didn't stop Brown from joining the anti-slavery cause in Kansas enthusiastically. There was probably very little chance of any other outcome. So he moved down to Kansas and settled in a small community called Osawatomi, not far from the Missouri border, and south of the Free State Party stronghold at Lawrence. John Brown did support the Free State Party very strongly, but he also didn't become directly involved in politics, much as in Massachusetts. His name was known, but at no point did Brown ever distinguish himself as an important leader, although one of his sons led a local militia company. And here's where the infamous Potawatomi Massacre comes in. In 1856, a number of unfortunate events took place that presumably contributed to John Brown's upcoming... decisions. We will probably never know what, if anything, Brown really thought or planned or expected from his deeds. Seemingly no clear records were made or survived, and those shed effectively no light on his real thought process. What we do know from the man himself suggests he may have felt too erratically angry to make any sense. So here are the bare facts, as well as the results. First, in 1856 John Brown's father died. Brown received the sad news on May 8th, which probably at least didn't help his mental state. Then the sack of Lawrence followed soon after on the 21st. Brown probably would have eagerly assisted in the defenses there because of the looming threat of border ruffian violence, even with his overall disengagement from Kansas politics. Yet he heard of the attack too late, and the entire quick raid had already concluded. And then the very next day, news about the caning of Preston Brooks became public. Following this, Brown immediately set out on the path that would lead to merciless slaughter in Pottawatomie Creek. Over the next few days, John Brown asked for, and received, the aid of several self-appointed anti-slavery militiamen in Kansas, which along with his sons gave him the manpower for his next step. On the night of May 24th, Brown personally led a late-night raid. He, his sons, and the previously mentioned militia ranged out to three homes in what is now Franklin County, Kansas. 
At each stop, they knocked on the door and forced one or more of the men inside to come out. Once led away from the homes, the captives were executed. Each one was brutally hacked to death with broadswords. The killings were brutal, cruel, and helped make the case an infamous media sensation. In one version of this story, this was mere righteous retribution against the forces of slavery, but the identity of the victims calls this into question. Several curious facts complicate the simple narrative. John Brown specifically and knowingly targeted three men, James Doyle, Alan Wilkinson, and James Harris. He and his men also murdered two grown sons of Doyle, who happened to be present, and they would have killed a couple of dinner guests if another victim had those not talked their way free. But while all of the victims were loosely associated with the pro-slavery cause, none of them were clearly leaders or known to be violent. They weren't necessarily even what one would call hard-line pro-slavery when it came down to it. This raises the specter that Brown's motivations might have been blind rage, lashing out at whatever was nearby rather than striking a real blow for liberty. Additionally, not long before the massacre, Brown stormed down to the county courthouse in a fit of anger and demanded to know if the laws would be enforced, presumably referencing the attack on Lawrence, but his statements were so confused and emotional it's hard to make any clear demand out. He evidently did not receive a satisfactory reply. And, interestingly, all three of the men targeted at Potawatomi were connected to the county judicial system in some capacity. It is possible that this was a simple coincidence due to them being prominent local figures. Finally, there is a third small oddity in light of both this and future events. Although Brown encouraged and led his men, he seems to have avoided striking a single blow in the killings himself. He always seemed to shy away from actually staining his own hands with blood, although he happily led others to murder. Later on, when confronted by people suspicious of his actions and who condemned the killings, John Brown defended the deeds as justice but he had a difficult time explaining exactly how that made sense to anyone else. Regardless, the Potawatomi massacre cut through Kansas and beyond like a siren of doom. Officially, the culprits were never identified. Unofficially, it very quickly became widely known within Kansas who perpetrated it. No charges were ever filed, and Brown was never officially punished, although at times he did have soldiers after him. It would have been difficult to actually prosecute him in any case, since the main witnesses were either directly complicit or dead. It almost didn't matter. Over the next few months, violence in Kansas erupted, now existing as everyday happenstance instead of mere words. The pro-slavery side had threatened bloodshed with the sack of Lawrence, but Brown committed a real massacre in response. In the aftermath, both sides were now primed for retaliation and both prepared for attack, which only made new attacks inevitable. Blood had been spilled upon the earth, and it could not easily be forgotten. The result was that Kansas suffered, and the suffering would go on until 1865. John Brown, for his part, wound up the center of attention in several Kansas events later on. We discussed this in part in the episode on Bleeding Kansas, how he outfoxed the cavalry unit of U.S. soldiers and reclaimed one of his sons. On another occasion, however, Brown and a militia unit camped near his homestead at Osawatomi, after stealing goods at horses from a local man. Two weeks thereafter, on August 30th of 1856, a pro-slavery band attacked Oswatomi in retaliation. 
Among other violence, they shot down one of Brown's sons, who evidently did not realize they meant violence, and began burning homes. John Brown and his followers rushed to the scene, and fought them briefly, but the raiders came with a cannon and numbers on their side. The Free State militiamen fled, but suffered only five deaths, and the raiders did not pursue them further. Instead of chasing Brown and bringing him to any kind of justice, they burned what was left of the town and left. Brown, most sensibly, did not linger long in Kansas thereafter. Instead, he began the next phase of his anti-slavery crusade. For the next few years, Brown wandered back and forth between Kansas and the East. When in more settled parts of the country, Brown pursued money with a zeal equal to his fury against slavery. And it was during this time that he obtained the backing of the Secret Six. This requires some explanation. Most abolitionists, at least loosely, adhered to some level of pacifism. Even those who did not rarely advocated direct confrontation with slavery by violence. John Brown emphatically did not fit this mold, which formed a large part of his success and his notoriety. He was, in part, the ideal many abolitionists aspired to, but would not or could not actually be. Or at least he appeared to be that ideal. His manners, dress, and appearance seem designed to evoke Old Testament wrath. Now, his deeds look positively Lilliputian in comparison to his constant carping for money and support. This is where the Secret Six come in. After the Potawatomi Massacre and leaving Kansas, Brown managed to obtain some financial assistance from numerous abolitionists, who very clearly knew his reputation but may not have been entirely aware of exactly what he had been up to in Kansas, only that he was a crusader against slavery. However, as time went on, he became more and more reliant on six specific individuals. These men came to back him on his most ambitious project yet, the destruction of slavery itself. Now, all six certainly knew by now the kind of man they were working with, for they were neither stupid nor unconnected. If they didn't know the facts, as they later claimed, it was only because they deliberately chose not to know. But we are getting slightly ahead of ourselves. As I have said, between 1856 and 1858, Brown went back and forth begging for money or carrying out small attacks in Kansas. In at least one memorable event, he freed several slaves and spirited them away to Canada. By May of 1858, Kansas had partly quieted down, or perhaps he had lost interest in what now appeared a small side issue to the problem of slavery. Brown then began to dream of much larger ambitions. Without an immediate cause, he started for more dramatic plays, and organized a constitutional convention in Canada to hammer out, in theory, a new constitution for a freed slave nation built out of Kansas, and no, I am not making that up. Nothing directly came of it, in fact, it made no sense, but the Canadian venture formed a part of his burgeoning plan to destroy slavery by leading a general uprising. The new constitution was meant in some way to form the basis of this rebellion. Exactly how serious any of this remains unclear, and it's uncertain just what Brown possibly intended to do about any of these ideas in a pragmatic sense, since the United States would presumably have something to say about it. However, these activities put him into contact with the most dedicated of anti-slavery circles, and he made the acquaintance of many notable figures, including Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman, 
He also met literary figures with abolition sympathies, such as Emerson and Thoreau. Many of them appeared to have liked Brown. They might judge him foolhardly and domineering, but at least no one doubted his passion for liberty. Most likely, it was during this period that Brown began to plan for his ultimate target. Unfortunately for history, much of his plans were very unclear, partly because he would later destroy much of the evidence, and the recollections of his family, friends, and confidants do not always agree even with the benefit of hindsight. In all probability, Brown increasingly turned his grab bag of wild ideas or hopes into something akin to a substantial proposal during this time. These may indeed have been ideas that he'd nurtured for years, but it is very difficult to say. However, Brown did retain the services of an English adventurer. As he gathered recruits to his cause, this Englishman would train them, drill them in how to fight. So presumably, he seriously meant some kind of military attack. Even if we don't know his exact intentions, however, we can guess that Brown must have created a plan to attack in Virginia soon, partly because he almost immediately began that recruitment. Presumably, his new secret backers made this concept possible. And this circle of correspondence with six specific individuals, the Secret Six, had the influence and money to help him. These were, in alphabetical order by last name, Thomas Higginson, Samuel Howe, Theodore Parker, Franklin Sanborn, Jarrett Smith, and George Stearns. If those names don't mean much to you, then let me assure you, they are all very noteworthy organizers of the abolition cause, and mostly very well-connected members of prominent New England families. They are not necessarily famous today in and of themselves, partly because they chose not to be, but they were deeply connected in the most radical elements of New England society, and served as avenues of communication linking abolition groups. Several of them are also notable for their connections to other social causes. These six diverted money and supplies to Brown, which, to be clear, included committing fraud upon their own state governments in some cases. And even with that, Brown constantly pressed them for more. Over the remainder of 1858 and 1859, Brown took this money and solidified a plan of action. This time, instead of invisible, almost insignificant pinpricks around the edges of slavery, he would launch a strike directly at its heart, at least in his own imagination. Thus did Brown conceive of an attack on Harper's Ferry, a small but beautiful town in Virginia, now actually in West Virginia, and quite close to Washington itself. Not coincidentally, it happened to play host to the major government arsenal of the United States, in fact, Harper's Ferry was the source of many of the arms which the federal government produced, and a source of numerous technical innovations. Situated in a picturesque valley, the town became the target of Brown's none-too-benign interest. Brown's plan was simple, if entirely improbable and frequently vague. He intended to secretly spread word of his attack to local slaves, occupy the federal arsenal, hand out all the weapons, and then march away to freedom, or maybe continue the attack and destroy slavery across the South. This may sound like a risky scheme, but this is patently untrue. These plans were far, far beyond risky. Brown apparently didn't clearly decide whether he intended to continue his attack southward, or try to create a rolling mass uprising, or flee to Canada while he imagined it possible. Leaving aside everything else, Harper's Ferry was also something of a strange choice to stage a slave uprising. 
The local unfree population was only about 20 to 30 percent of the total, whereas in some parts of the South it reached as high as 75 percent. Meanwhile, an attack on a government arsenal would immediately rouse a major public alert, yet Harper's Ferry lay too far south for a quick dash back to Canada either. It was, in short, effectively suicide, but Brown's men, and possibly the man himself, didn't appear to understand that. Before going any further, we need to clarify that in the imagination of many abolitionists, and many slave owners for that, the slave population was always ready to explode in a flurry of violence and destruction. And realistically, no small amount of racism went into this view as well. That this rarely, if ever, happened was simply proof that the threat was lurking. After all, there was always the next dark night when the slaves would undoubtedly rise up to destroy their masters. It is possible this would or could have been the case, but the slave system was strong enough to stop virtually any small uprising before it gained momentum. More critically, however, the slaves were not willing to run off and die nobly in order to end slavery, as most of them were, not so shockingly, fond of living. And while they truly didn't want to be slaves, they also didn't condone mass murder any more than other Americans. Yet this is the key idea that Brown and the Secret Six embraced. Frederick Douglass, who knew about the plan well in advance, politely declined any further association with Brown. John Brown had hoped that Douglass would be his voice to the slaves and help recruit and organize them. But Douglass understood very well that this idea, and probably Brown himself, had gone round the bend. However, Brown can also be said to have had a clear impact on Frederick Douglass, too. The latter slowly dropped garrison-style pacifism in favor of a more militant anti-slavery line, one he would maintain throughout the coming Civil War. As the planned attack drew near, many of the men whom Brown enlisted managed to avoid the trouble entirely, mostly by never showing up at all. Brown's recruits from the Canadian colony of ex-slaves never ventured to join him either. His English adventurer demanded, politely, to be paid and took his leave in turn. John Brown, struggling to come to terms with all this, seemed to intermittently fall into a kind of despair and fatalism, doing little more to prepare. He may have really given up on succeeding and come to believe that he could become a glorious martyr, but this is only speculation based on his later actions. At times, he seemed to have a manic confidence. So who knows, really. Ironically, the group of odd 30 men who gathered to support Brown on a farm near Harper's Ferry spent their time in comfortable domestic cheer. The oddball collection included some real social misfits, but even they were a gregarious and interesting lot. They also scouted the area in detail, which went quite unnoticed by the inhabitants of the calm town. In particular, one of Brown's men made certain to familiarize himself with the home of Colonel Lewis Washington, Colonel Washington was a local man and a relative of the famous president in General Washington. The colonel had inherited a sword of the great revolutionary hero himself, and John Brown very much wanted it for his own. Among other things, the raiders secreted hundreds upon hundreds of pikes, planning to hand them out to the slaves. Although obviously ineffectual compared to guns, John Brown supposed that thousands of former slaves with mass spears might intimidate anyone who proposed to capture them. The pikes actually led to nearly the only moment of danger in the entire preparation. It proved difficult to move all of the pikes in without arousing suspicions in nearby officials. Either way, on the evening of October 16, 1859, Brown decided it was time, 
and he launched his attack. As dusk fell, he took a small band into Harper's Ferry. They swiftly seized the arsenal, there being only a few men present to take captive. They also stopped the evening train from leaving. In addition to cutting the telegraph lines, Brown's men took several town officials hostage. A small group also rode straight to the home of Colonel Washington, rousted the surprised man from bed, took the fine sword of President Washington, and carried the lot back to the arsenal complex, along with a couple of Colonel Washington's slaves who accompanied them. This part of the plan having succeeded masterfully, there turned out to be no particular second stage of the plan. Brown inexplicably let the night train go out, thereby soon spreading word of the attack along with a wild overestimate of the size and power of the raiding party. In the meantime, Brown settled down to wait for the slaves to converge on the town, which never happened since they had no knowledge of the plan. Only a few men, all contacted directly, came back to the arsenal, and later on they testified that they were confused and afraid of the armed soldiers and not willing revolutionaries. Even now, it's hard to tell how they felt about the situation, given the extreme uncertainty and stress of the moment. In the early hours of the morning, the residents of the town discovered the situation, and rapidly spread the alarm around the area. There being a distinct shortage of soldiers and police to settle the matter, they took to dealing with Brown and his men themselves. Citizens sparked a campaign of erratic sniping fire that quickly pinned Brown and all his soldiers inside the arsenal. Militiamen from the area soon turned out as well, and for good reason, for Brown had begun the previous night with the aforementioned kidnappings and also murder. When an unknown figure approached the two raiders situated on the railroad bridge in the dark, the pair opened fire. A bullet struck down the completely unarmed, free African-American station worker, who was merely going out to speak to someone he presumed to be a fellow laborer. Despite a large and vibrant free black population in the area, neither John Brown nor his raiders included a single one of them in their plans, and the locals knew nothing of it. The man they shot, Hayward Shepard, died after hours of blood loss and agonizing pain. A town doctor could do nothing for him. Brown spent his time holed up in a brick engine house with the captives. By first light, he had seemingly lost control of the situation entirely and had no clear idea about what to do next. Although he did not mistreat them, the prisoners for their part seemed rather obviously nonplussed at the mess and deeply unimpressed with Brown personally. He evidently expected that the slaves would spontaneously rise up to join him, but he had not communicated his plans. Few heard what was going on, let alone would they go into town to die with him. Within a matter of some hours more, word of the crisis inevitably reached Washington, and soon after Richmond, Virginia. President Buchanan dispatched a company of Marines, as there happened to be a detachment fortunately close by in the Washington Naval Yard. By late morning, the local militiamen had assembled. They more or less blocked Brown from escaping. It's possible he could have staged a breakout in the confusion before they totally surrounded the arsenal, but that was no longer an option. Instead, Brown dithered and delayed, and took no particular action on his own behalf. As it happened, the militia did enough damage on their own, for there was no leadership and the officers had about as much professionalism as the average town drunk. Several actions of gruesome cruelty took place, fueled by Dutch courage whenever the militiamen or townsmen got a hold of a raider and gave vent to their fears and frustrations. They did not respect Brown's attempt at a negotiation and shot down two men who waved a white flag. But in large part, that was simply because there was no authority or leader to negotiate anyway, 
Brown and his men had taken captive local leading citizens, and they shot the mayor dead. The latter, completely unarmed, took a bullet while peering at the arsenal from behind a water tower. The siege went on for the remainder of the day, and all through the night. The following morning, the 18th, the Marines arrived. They soon were in place to assault Brown, still holed up in the armory. Sent to lead those soldiers was none other than Colonel Robert E. Lee himself, capably assisted by J.E.B. Stewart. Brown refused the call to surrender, although he appeared to have no better ideas. So Lee ordered the attack. The militia declined the honor, which was most likely just as well for everyone involved given their tired, half-inebriated state and poor training. The Marines, of course, specialize in close-quarters fighting. The Navy men first tried to batter down the engine house door with sledgehammers, but that failed. Not to be deterred, they then grabbed a heavy ladder and rammed it straight through. In the assault, they cut straight through most of Brown's surviving Loyalists. After a short but sharp fight with casualties on both sides, the Marines successfully secured the building and protected all the hostages from harm. Brown himself nearly died in the fighting, but he survived several deep saver wounds. This led to the next phase of this peculiar story. Unlike several civilians, most of his raiders, and one Marine, Brown lived to tell the tale. And that meant he was able to stand trial. And he was indeed very rapidly put on trial, and even more rapidly found guilty of treason and sentenced to death. Despite the unseemly haste, there was no doubt that the trial was, in this case, fair, and the outcome consistent with jurisprudence. In American justice, it's next to impossible to charge anybody with treason. But Brown really didn't make it difficult for the government. These were state charges, and not federal. But not surprisingly, President Buchanan opted to let Virginia take the lead. Buchanan tended to defer to Southern elites. And, well, you could only execute Brown once, after all. That execution was not long in coming, for Brown had effectively no chance at escaping the hangman. Despite a couple half-baked schemes by others, Brown had no intention of even trying. Virginia Governor Henry Weiss, having rushed to Harper's Ferry during the raid only to arrive slightly too late, met with the man in person, and at least considered sparing Brown. Yet after meeting him and talking, he also agreed that Brown was not mad and did not have grounds for clemency, though he recognized that Brown probably wanted to become a martyr. Of interest is that Brown, during this period, impressed many who came into contact with him, including a handful of strongly pro-slavery men. For example, Colonel Lewis, his former prisoner, remarked positively on his firmness and resolve under pressure. They were more than willing to execute him, yet even pro-slavery Virginians appear to have honestly considered his quiet persistence, willingness to bear pain, and fearless courage exemplary. This here is a truly great part of his legend, how, in Brown's final test, he amazed everyone. One person who, though probably caring for him deeply, did not get to meet him once more was his wife, Mary. She had not seen him since he left their New York farm months earlier. Though she likely suspected something of what John Brown intended, she loyally kept faith with him, even though he had gotten two more of her sons killed in the process. Brown asked friends to keep her away, at least according to him, to spare her the indignity of being made a public spectacle. I think, having said a great deal about John Brown for the moment, it's a good time to 
take some of his last words spoken during the trial. In the first place, I deny everything but what I have all along admitted. The design on my part to free the slaves. That was all I intended. I never did intend murder or treason or the destruction of property, or to excite or incite slaves to rebellion, or to make insurrection. Had I interfered in the manner which I admit, and which I admit has been fairly proved, for I admire the truthfulness and candor of the greater portion of the witnesses who have testified in this case, had I so interfered in behalf of the rich, the powerful, the intelligent, the so-called great, or in behalf of any of their friends, either father, mother, brother, sister, wife, or children, or any of that class, and suffered and sacrificed what I have in this interference, it would have been all right, and every man in this court would have deemed it an act worthy of reward rather than punishment. Thus John Brown. Much hypocrisy and deception lay within those words, but take them for what they are worth. Brown went to the gallows on December 2nd, 1859. It was a strangely formal pageantry attended by a surprisingly broad collection of notables. Robert E. Lee and Jeb Stewart attended. Edmund Ruffin, practically the apostle of disunion himself, showed up, having slipped improbably into a formation of Virginia Military Institute cadets under the tutelage of Thomas J. Jackson. Walt Whitman, later a renowned poet of the age, attended at his capacity as journalist. And actor John Wilkes Booth donned the uniform of a Richmond militia company and went along as well. The execution, such as it was, went efficiently enough and shifted the old abolitionist off this mortal coil. His body went off to New York, where his family, prevented from seeing him before the end, would at least be able to grieve over it. They might as well have had a funeral of the old nation itself. The country began a terminal slide into secession fever almost immediately though it did not explode until after the election of 1860. The moment word of Brown's raid leaked out, Southerners began panicking that he was right, and an abolition horde arming their slaves would descend in bloody fury. That failed to occur, and the actual event looked rather less impressive in hindsight, but many kept their fears close to their hearts. Two significant complementary issues emerged almost immediately which deeply divided the country north and south, or at least helped to do so. The first was that word about John Brown's secret six came out rapidly. Brown had, as mentioned, destroyed some of his correspondence, but much survived anyway. This immediately created a firestorm of controversy. Some of the most important and connected men in the anti-slavery cause, many of whom were deeply linked to a huge swath of cultural elites, had just been caught promoting treason red-handed. To say that even most moderate Southerners went ballistic would be understating matters. Far from proclaiming the peaceful cause of moral advancement, the abolitionists had apparently just fulfilled every fear that free men living in a slave society might feel. The opposition, it seemed, was organized, conspiratorial, and dedicated to violence and mass murder. This was emphatically not the image that most abolitionists wanted to project, but now Southerners, already suspicious of abolitionism, became convinced that the groups were less moral crusaders and more insane murderers. This was a fatal breakdown in public spirit, and led to constant fear on the part of even those who weren't enthusiastic about slavery. The growing support for fire-eating secessionists over the next year can only be understood in context of this persistent belief.
The other issue lay in how the North grappled with the problem of John Brown and his actions. This embodied more or less the historical controversy and contradiction over Brown that we've explored today. The official, initial, and continuing response of most Northern figures, including the nascent Republican Party, was to condemn Brown. For the most part, this remains the view to this day. It's not easy or arguably desirable to ignore the fact that Brown committed murder, theft, and rebellion while accomplishing nothing but destruction and provoking a violent reaction in turn. Abraham Lincoln, for one, took and maintained just that view, as did most mainstream Republicans. But abolitionists, and to some degree the public, saw a more heroic figure, or at least the image of one convenient for publicity. The romantic side of Brown's larger-than-life adventures could be, and was swiftly, turned into a symbolic rebuke of slavery. Abolitionists managed to rally a considerable set of public opinion in favor of Brown, at least once he was conveniently dead. That death allowed him to be portrayed as a murder figure, free of any risk that the real man might reveal himself as less than glorious. Across much of the North, church bells tolled in grief at his passing, and he was treated in some areas as might a saint murdered in the night. This is a highly misleading depiction of the man, but it was a powerful image regardless. It's very difficult to measure how much this directly affected the voting, arguing, and feuding public. But it's undeniable that Brown put slavery, already the extremely hot topic for the nation, straight and unequivocally at the forefront of all political action. And his final actions and death not only created a media sensation, it pushed everyone in the nation to think very long and very hard about these major issues. After Harper's Ferry, no one could ever ignore the burning question of slavery again, not even for a moment, until the 13th Amendment finally wiped it away for good. In Kansas, John Brown struck fire at the last leaves of peace and started a small war. At Harper's Ferry, he flung oil and firebrands onto the body politic and heralded a far larger and more terrible conflict still. Whether a good man or a bad one, a savior or a terrorist— with these last words from the gallows, he became a prophet. I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away, but with blood. I had, as I now think, vainly flattered myself that without very much bloodshed it might be done. And so, within a year, it would come to pass. Thank you for listening to the American Civil War Podcast. Our next series will be a three-episode set on Abraham Lincoln and his rise from obscure frontier politician to President of the United States. I hope you'll come back next time.